Hey everybody, welcome to Anthropological, where we are serving up some real life applications for some very anthropological theories. Uh, my name is David Moore. I am a Chicago bartender, uh, actor, and activist. And this episode was uh, very exciting for me. It's all about queer bars. Um, and I consider myself as, uh, as queer as it gets. Not really, but queer enough. And I am joined by Hi, y'all. I'm Kasira Hill, a local anthropologist, graphic designer, and a clear owner of Two Gold Chains. <laughs> My gosh. And we are joined by Morgan Higgins. Morgan Higgins is the director of logistics for Peach Presents and a manager at Replay Andersonville. Hi, Morgan. Hi. And we have white wine, which is really what queerness is all about. Uh, so this episode is going to be all about all about queer bars and the evolution and development of them over time. Um, and Kasira is going to serve us up some anthropological context before we delve into all the topics at hand. Yeah, y'all. Hi. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you all with us. Um, delving into a little bit of history, I like to joke, and I was saying earlier um, before we hopped on that you know, my knowledge when I think, when I sit down and I start having conversations about, um, you know, LGBTQ plus history, queer history, queer theory, and I feel like my knowledge base goes from one, you know, 500,000 years ago, the evolution of, of, of cultures um, in our ancient ancestors and also with our uh, our evolutionary cousins, apes and chimpanzees, and we see the emergence of social relationships built and um, dynamics built within like stress relief and pleasure um, in our history. Uh, I feel like I start there and then I can only jump right into, you know, the Harlem Renaissance in, in the 1920s. So I think for the purpose of our conversation, I'm going to set aside this uh, really ancient evolutionary theory and focus more on how we frame this conversation, um, specifically around the histories that we aren't maybe taught or the histories that we, um, or rather have been kind of removed from our understanding of, of, of queer theory and, and uh, queer history. Um, so in the 1920s, uh, the Harlem Renaissance was emerging and it was beautiful and it was full of different types of arts and cultures and, and new innovations from, from black folks that were building a really strong um, musical and, and, and creative community in Harlem. Um, I start here because usually the way that we think or rather the way that we mainstream history has taught us about the LGBTQ plus movement um, is very much so through the lens of of American and, and Western Civ and our ideals attached to that. So I feel like in my own, you know, relationship with learning histories, I have to teach myself to reframe some of these histories around ideals that are not based in, you know, this community is in opposition to, you know, strict uh, Christianity, or this community is in opposition to this, and rather just a fluid sense of community there. Um, so when we start about the Harlem Renaissance, uh, there was a quote that I thought of, and I later had to confirm, but it was noted as surely as gay as it was black. So um, that coming from an academic at the time writing about 
writing about the Renaissance and what he was seeing with jazz culture and uh, queer culture emerging in, in, in the Renaissance there. Um, black queer, lesbian, and transgender femmes created opportunities for expression and visibility and in spaces of inclusivity. I like to think of um, specifically Aaliyah Walker's rent parties that started to emerge around then. Aaliyah Walker, um, descendant or daughter of uh, CJ Walker, Madam CJ Walker, um, a self-known entrepreneur. Um, she had a house and she started hosting rent parties and culture parties, art parties, very much so in the space that was open um, and welcome and uh, shaped by trans uh, femmes, black femmes at the time, uh, queer and lesbian femmes at the time that were also very prevalent in the, um, in the evolution of, of jazz culture there. So I bring that up because that will later contribute to a conversation of repackaging or rather the eraser of some very integral queer, um, black queer, femme and transgender folks in LGBTQ plus history. So I'm starting there and I'm gonna leave the floor open. Yeah, another, because uh, <clears throat> the first thing that we're gonna really talk about is our each of our uh, individual first experiences at Queer Bars which I always find to be very interesting. I think a lot of people in similar communities, I'm saying that within the queer community as an umbrella term, have uh, somewhat similar experiences based off of how you look, the color of your skin, the type of neighborhood that queer bar was in. Um, what I think is interesting also is some anthropological context. <clears throat> so much of the history that we're taught is surrounded around Stonewall and like 1969 and on. And so what Kasira brings up is so important because there's so much history before Stonewall that completely just does not get taught. And uh, we typically rely on media or film or television to help then tell these stories in a thoughtful way. And then sometimes, unfortunately, and it's just sort of how this industry works, <clears throat> film and television can sometimes bastardize these stories and create an alternate um sort of theme in place to you know sell more film or to sell more uh subscriptions to these um to like netflix or hulu or whatever it is um yeah. i think what's kind of cool is uh before even stonewall there was the sit-in at uh julius in greenwich village which ironically enough is like very very close to stonewall but historically there were other moments in time that helped contribute to the normalizing of queer bars and the normalizing of gathering and queer spaces. Um, and I would say safer, but I mean, to be quite honest, we still hear stories to this day of like tragic experiences that take place in queer bars all the time because obviously discrimination is, is we're, we're not anywhere near where we should be right now. Um, but the sip-in is a cool kind of historical context because it was uh, in a lot of ways, the first real, um, it's, it's called the sip-in in reference to the sit-in. <clears throat> in order to silently protest saying, you are gonna serve us alcohol because liquor laws would essentially penalize bars and restaurants in New York specifically and other states also, but New York most famously for serving anybody that was openly queer because it was considered disorderly conduct uh, while sipping at a bar. And so what the sip-in did was offer a really big spotlight on the subject matter at hand and then eventually overturned the liquor laws. But overturning the liquor laws is a really, really small win for such a huge battle. Like as many people know, 2020, we just had some you know, monumental LGBTQ plus uh, um, a Supreme Court decision about discrimination within the workplace, which is mind blowing to think about that literally you could have still been 
fired or penalized for being queer in the workspace. Um, and there's, uh, there's so much other context. There's Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There is the Defense Against Marriage Act. There are, uh, and that's honestly, for in so many ways, really predominantly talked about within the gay and lesbian lens. Uh, none of this even addresses the trans experience and how that is uh, is rarely brought up in discussion in mainstream conversations because uh, it's still taboo, which is insane. You know, it's still people's lives. So I want to offer all that context before we delve into our uh, topics at hand. Um, and Morgan, the first question I want to ask you is, uh, what was your first experience in a in a queer bar? What was it like? Where was it? Tell us. Um, it was probably at, um, at Spin, which is now, uh, Furious Spoon. <laughs> um, and I, I remember going, um, I'm from a suburb, like a small suburb, and, um, like an hour away from Chicago. And it was like, uh, it was me and like some of, I didn't have any queer friends. So my straight friends took me to Spin. And I remember being so excited about it. And when I got there, like, it was super fun, um, but something didn't feel, like, entirely, like, this was my home or, like, my space, um, and I think that just is kind of just because it's very much, it, it, it was, like, a, a little bit leaning towards cisgendered men um, and cisgendered white men, like, I wasn't trying to hear, like, Britney Spears all night. Um, so that, that was kind of my first experience. So it was, it was fun, but, you know, it, it didn't feel as, as welcoming as I think, you know, it, it should feel when, you know, your first time at, your first time at, at a queer bar, you know what I mean? Yeah. Can you, do you remember what your first, like, really, really positive queer bar experience was where you did feel like, oh, this space feels more of what I was looking for? Or has that even happened yet? Um, I think that in my first, like, personally, like, speaking, it was probably at, um, it's probably when we did the first peach was, was when I was like, okay, this is the experience that I wanted. And I think, I mean, it obviously was because, like, you know, I was part of curating it in every single aspect. Um, and it, it was just such a, a mixture of people, which I felt like it was really um, reflective of what my life actually was. It wasn't so segregated, which I feel like sometimes these, like, you know, it, it is at, at other venues or, or other bars. So um, that was something that I, I was really proud of and I really enjoyed. And I think that, you know, uh, that was probably the first time I really, really felt at home. Um, and then it allowed me to expand and go to other, um, because I got to know so many different people, you know, I found out about, you know, slow-mo and, you know, everything in Small World Collective was doing. And, and those are the spaces where I felt like more at home and there was more of a, like a, a melting pot and, you know, and black culture was also really heavily celebrated too. Totally. We're going to get into also what Peach Presents does and how it kind of started and the, the purpose of it in a bit. Um, Kasira, I know that you and I talked before this about, uh, and I don't know if it was your first experience at a queer bar, but you were talking about an experience that like shocked you to a certain extent about the way that people were treated in the bar than right outside of the bar. Can you talk about that? 
Yeah, I, um, I have heard and I have been in an experience that was definitely, um, it was, when I say that it's shocking, I would say that it's, it's shocking, but it's not surprising knowing the context. Um, I was outside of Queen and I was with a group of friends um, and I had been to Queen a couple of times. It was definitely a little bit too late for me sometimes, but the times I had the energy, like I was about it. Um, but I was out there with friend, this wasn't my first time, but they experienced, um, very confrontational and incredibly like a dangerous situation with two um cisgendered gay white men walking up to them and essentially telling them that they need to get out that that place wasn't for for them and they were two um two poc transgender friends so uh that experience and and just seeing very much so how there's are two dynamics in Boys Town when I was living in Boys Town, where I was hanging out with friends that were queer performers and POC performers at, at Berlin quite fre quite frequently. And then, you know, on the other side of, of Broadway experiencing something very different that um, didn't feel as, as intersectional as it could have been. And I definitely see that that experience being echoed through the queer and gay bar experience here often um, is a lack of, I don't like using the word diversity, but intersectionality, a, a, a wide variety of, of LGBTQ plus community there and rather just one community being represented, which was usually, you know, middle class, cisgendered gay men, gay white men. Um, which is a great transition to me as the token middle class white cisgendered gay man here. But the, you know, just pointing out the obvious, but the, the individual experiences um, of uh, black, brown, uh, femme, trans, people of color in queer bars, especially, I'm always fascinated to listen to people's first experiences and not in a form of like, of open up your, you know, your trauma to me and, and offer your, your free labor to me. I'm just, it's fascinating to listen about because it really just clearly shines the light on the obvious deviation between what my first experience at a gay bar was versus essentially anybody that doesn't look somewhat similar to me. Um, the first queer bar I ever went to was called C Street and it was in Champaign, Illinois. Um, and it was a, I was a freshman in college, and this would have been 2016. And growing up in Hebron, Illinois, which was a, uh, I didn't want to use the word predominantly, like an, a pretty much all white, uh, small farm town in Illinois with no real queer experience and nothing really in McHenry County was a, any kind of queer atmosphere. I was so excited. I feel like a lot of people's first thing that they do when they go to a new city or they, they turn 21 or of legal age to go to a queer bar is they just look on their Google Maps for like gay bar, like closest gay bar to me, because you're you're wanting to have that experience. You're just you're ready for it. You've been working up to this moment. And I went to C Street with my two other uh, also white friends, uh, and we were we had we had the time of our lives because it was our first time, and we were we were tipsy and we we're having a great time. And I think that for me the word intersectional wasn't a thing for me then. I didn't know it. I wasn't, you know, I was ignorant to that concept. 
I thought it was more, now I can say, I thought it was definitely more intersectional than anything I had seen before. I was like, I can see two black drag queens. That's already more culture than I've seen in my entire life. This is fantastic. I must be in a glorious space. But realizing, um, especially having moved to Chicago and having experienced Boys Town, uh, you start becoming uh, acutely aware to what, you know, quote unquote normalcy in a queer bar setting is for certain people and what it feels like for others, um, which I want that to transition to, to what Peach Presents does, Morgan. And, mm-hmm. and I want uh, everybody to kind of know, uh, first off, what Peach Presents is and sort of like what your, your goal was in creating it. Yeah, so uh, Peach started out, um, it, it started out as a, as a party series, um, and, and it was kind of a, it was a collaboration um, with uh, Brie Aubrey and um, Hannah Beatty, um, and it was kind of under the umbrella of Black Third Agency, which Brie Aubrey is the, is the president um, and, and founding member of, and, you know, our goal with it was just to kind of, for us to, we kind of felt like the the, the queer um, women, uh, gender non-binary, um, gender non-conforming, um, and trans communities were all kind of separated and segregated in Chicago. Um, and what we wanted to do was we wanted to kind of bring them all together in this uh, in a, like a really special way that, that was made to, to celebrate everyone. Um, and so we started out with a party kind of highlighting, um, it, it was the decades uh, party series. And so we did a 60s parties, a 70s parties, an 80s, 90s, 2000s, and then the future. Um, and it was also just meant to highlight how we have come through um, through the ages and in, in, as, a, as a queer community. Um, and, and then we kind of just developed from there. And we actually just kind of went through a name change with, as Peach Presents because we wanted to do more than parties. Um, we discovered like when we did the Element series that, you know, there really was, there, there are, there's a really group, there's a, there's a lot of people who want to do more than party. They want to, they want to talk and they want to, they want to get to know, um, you know, the, the other members of their community on, on a deeper level. Um, so I think that's, that's what we kind of, focus on um, and the elements. And then we just decided that Peach Presents moving forward would be a, um, a, a, a space where, um, where people knew that they can experience a, a, um, a, lot of, a lot of different things. And so that's kind of what, what, we, um, what we focused on for Peach. It's, it's ironic in a certain way that Peach Presents <clears throat> needed to form in order to essentially offer these spaces for for especially like black femme lesbian uh, trans queer people when uh, what Casira was mentioning earlier so much of the like current stat status of queer culture is in thanks to mm-hmm. black trans and black queer culture thinking of the Harlem Renaissance I love there's a beautiful story in I think it's 1925 where Ma Bailey, who is a, a really, it was like the mother of blues, uh, had a like private lesbian party in her, like in her manor 
and yes. was busted by the cops. And then her partner bailed her out of jail the next day and they just kept doing it. Like there's so many stories of like the first like really powerful and culturally progressive queer parties that took place were done because of things like Peach Presents, like creating safe spaces for queer people that did not look like or were not white cisgendered men. Because yeah. essentially when all these things were happening, white cisgendered men went on and essentially created these uh, alternate spaces that excluded people of color and excluded femme in any way and excluded trans people because there was this desire to be the upper echelon. There was a classist kind of uh, action there of like cre creating this safer and more quote unquote clean space for what white gayness looked like. And so yeah. I always find it ironic that we're just, that we're right now trying to fi fight for the rights of people that essentially got me my rights in the first place. And so, um, yeah. yeah, the connection is interesting. Yeah, it really is. And I think that another thing that we uh, focused on with Peach was doing it in spaces where, you know, queer people aren't necessarily, you know, quick to go to or, or, not even like quick to go to but quick to be invited to you know what i mean like mm -hmm. you know, like it, we really focus on moving outside of outside of boys town outside of andersonville into yes. i mean having parties like downtown at, at other at, you know like you know hotels and you know in different clubs downtown and really being able to have like a safe space for queer people to really experience chicago whereas before or um whereas i feel like sometimes like i would go to a, uh like downtown and i wouldn't be able to like you know be with my partner or like show any sort of affection with my partner without you know attracting like unwanted attention and so peach really we really wanted to be able to invade and claim these spaces um for 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 our community yeah there we were, Kasira uh, and I were talking about this beforehand, which is that queer spaces and queer bars are really have nothing to do with the actual physical space. It has, you know what I mean? It has nothing to do with, with a physical building being a queer bar or a neighborhood that has a new uh, lesbian bar or dive bar that's really approachable to like the leather community. Uh, it really has much more to do with the space that's created within it. And so much of that has to do with the uh the people that are leading it the ownership behind these bars and restaurants mm -hmm. and the 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 clientele but uh, and we talk about this all the time in, in hospitality the clientele much of the time reflects who works there you know people that work in spaces bring in their friends and then word spreads yeah. and if you're if you, the people that work in a queer space are all uh pretty white gay boys and they invite pretty white gay boy friends and it sort of just goes on it's like the this new chart that shows like one every white person has like ninety seven percent white friends and like one percent black friends one percent like like you bring in who you know and most people create their friendship groups I say most people out of their who looks like them it's just like it is what has ended up being well white people do that much more specifically I should say but you know that's what sort of ends up happening and so when you started when Peach Presents has has gone off and created these spaces, was it clear that you could create a queer environment in a non-typically queer space pretty easily? 
Um, not easily, no. Um, it, there, there's a lot of like behind the scenes things that, that, that go on. Um, we have to have conversations with the staff, with the managers, you know, really set boundaries and, and also set goals on, on what we want and, and really be uncompromising in providing a queer and, you know, safe space. So, I mean, yeah, we can do it, but I, I, it didn't come easily. It was, a, it was a lot of, you know, back and forth um, and, and really kind of, you know, they, as we got more established, it was easier to do um, but, you know, in the beginning, it, it was a lot of, it was a lot of effort and it was a lot of conversations um, that, that we were having with venue owners and venue management. Um, and, you know, it's still something that, it's still something that we just strive to do. And we also like have, we try to, you know, let people who attend the parties or our events, you know, um, we want their feedback because we want to know how they're feeling. and. And then so we can address that and like keep improving and, and doing our best to really, you know, stay true to our commitment to, to having like a really safe space for, for queer people. Yeah. Um, the something that I was when I was thinking about this episode with Kasira, something that I was researching and I was really fascinated by was like the first gay bars in the country and what that looked like and how are they formed and what's kind of fascinating and kind of beautiful is that so many queer bars start off as like not designated queer bars they started off as taverns or pubs or like multi-story complexes that could very quietly hold safe queer spaces um and so uh, there's um in provincetown in massachusetts uh a bar called i think it's called white horse tavern uh, that started, I believe, in like the 18, late 1860s, early 1870s, started off as this tavern, creating a, just a general kind of pub atmosphere, uh, but had an upstairs sort of uh, loungier, almost speakeasy vibe that was dedicated to being a safe queer space. And then a downstairs that was uh, like attractive to like the leather community and, and sort of opened that space up, which is incredible to think that this was in 1870, like the late 1870s, when so, like sodomy was technically illegal when walking around holding hands with somebody could get you uh like punished by not just fines but violence uh uh mutilation death depending on where you were in the country the fact that i had it near me isn't it texas yeah in 2003 that was like when texas actually decreed that homosexuality was not illegal by law like literally it's not even until the 21st century that we're actually seeing the acceptance completely and it's not it's just acceptance by law of communities and it's really just communities that we can that people can stomach uh having the conversation about we don't even get to delve into the topics of of black queerness and trans experience because that's still being debated to and argued about to this day in a way as if as if these lives are not included in these in these uh, earlier conversations. And the reason I bring this up is because we're talking about the historical context of queer bars today, which we're gonna transition to in a second, is what is specifically Boys Town today and the kind of stuff that's going on. Uh, this, was, <laughs> this is a week of hot topics in Boys Town. But knowing the sort of historical context of how these bars were even able to, to form in the first place, uh, 
the movements, the eras that were created. If anything is taken away from this, I hope it's everybody researching what the Harlem Renaissance was and what happened and how it really, what Kasira said is so lovely. It is not an era of just queerness. It was an era of, of blackness and art and music and, and so many different experiences um, that I'm even slightly embarrassed to be the, the one right now trying to <laughs> offer context on it. But I think if anybody can research this stuff afterwards and we'll provide some links to some, I think really thoughtful timelines and, and uh, writing on these subjects, uh, take a look. It's really great and thoughtful to think about why bars are set up the way that they are today. Um, with that, I kind of want to transition into Boys Town, uh, which uh, I've worked in. Obviously, you have worked in, Morgan, for several years in. Um, I'm curious to hear what your experience generally, and we'll talk about this week and sort of this month with the Black Drag Council and what's been going on. What has your generalized experience working in Boys Town been like? Did we lose her? Oh, no, Morgan, I think you're muted. Lose them? I got to get used to that. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> it was, I mean, like, it was, a, it was a positive experience. I made a lot of great friends. Um, but I mean, it, it obviously came with a lot of challenges. And, um, and I tried not to compromise my own values. Um, as a um, as a as a black uh, non-binary person, um, and I, I hope that I did it. Um, but I mean, I don't know if I have like a, like a general thing. Like it was it was positive, but it it like I don't know. I can't really like explain it. It was such a it was there was a lot of emotions and there was a lot of hard conversations, but there was a there was also a lot of fun too. Um, it but. I mean, did I face a lot of discrimination down there? Absolutely. Um, it it kind of depend, depended on like where I was or what I was doing, um, I think. What, uh, were there specific, uh, I don't really wanna ask about specific uh, moments of di discrimination, but did you notice a big difference between being a guest at a bar in Boys Town versus bartending in Boys Town, as far as like how people treated you and respected you. Oh, absolutely. Um, once, I, like you know, once I started working down there, it was you know everybody was like, oh, oh yeah, you know, come on in, you know, um, for the for the most part. Um, when uh, as I as I was like first going downtown, I did have to have like you know some of my or not, not downtown boys town. Um, you know I did have to have some of my white coworkers kind of like vouch for me um, in, in in like coming into spaces like it like oh yeah like they're one of the good ones I guess um, in in some cases and that was really hurtful and I like kind of questioned like you know do I even want to be in this space where I have to like prove myself like that. Um, so it was, it was an, it, there was definitely, um, and I still think it's a really big difference, like me going down there, like, you know, having worked at, you know, a couple different bars uh, down there and what I think, you know, other Black people face when, when they go to Boys Town. Um, you know, you, you, 
it's just I just think that is it's way way different yeah uh, Kasira, you brought up before the episode, and I'd love for you to take take over on this one. The idea of unpacking one's identity in order to sort of fit in or work within a very, uh, I hate saying white culture, because I don't think there really is a white culture, but like to fit into a predominantly white working environment and community that has essentially, uh, you know, we have declared that Boys Town is this very, it is a very generally white cisgendered uh male space that like morgan's saying it you it took uh having people to vouch for you or having to work in the actual spaces to get that sort of respect in the first place can you because can you talk about what you wanted to delve into with the idea of like a repackaging oneself yeah i think um and when I, okay, so before I start speaking, I'm going to be speaking from the perspective of someone that lived in Boys Town for two years, and I'm also speaking from hearing the experiences that my other um, queer POC friends have shared with me. So it's kind of a conglomerate of those two things. Um, I think especially when it comes to specifically spaces in Boys Town and the conversation around uh, queer history and uh, LGBTQ plus uh, civil rights movements and, um, and visibility in a community. I think the repackaging of what Black and uh, Black queer and, and transgender femmes have shared with us um, in, this, in this movement, um, the repackaging of that and, and how that is presented to us now in Boys Town specifically with what bars are available, who are in those bars, um, who's working at those bars, uh, things like market days, you know, who is benefiting from uh, that event, who is present at that event, who is getting hired, who's leading. Um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get at this, this historical this historical thing of, of, of repackaging a movement to either be more of the standardized norm or more elite in some sense or more digestible for, uh, for the general public. And I, when I say general public, I'm speaking to just like middle white America um, specifically. So yeah, I, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to, to bring up because I think that um, the repackaging of stories and the repackaging of, of movements is definitely something that we're having to grapple with in a, in a certain volume right now too with Black Lives Matter um, and the, you know, the phrase of, you know, defund that police uh, and having to repackage that or companies taking it upon themselves to repackage it. That's the lens that I'm, that I'm speaking from. Yeah. Totally. Uh... Morgan, you just mentioned the the feeling of like, yeah, this conflict of do I even want to work in an environment where I'm receiving this sort of treatment or I feel like I'm not able to be completely myself or I'm being judged for things that I legitimately cannot uh, control or have no desire to change or alter for anybody is what Kasira is mentioning about this idea of like repackaging oneself to fit in or to succeed uh, to thrive in sort of this environment does that feel resonant yeah absolutely I think uh, more so in in 
earlier in my career and boys found it. It was definitely, I, I felt like I did have to repackage myself and that was predominantly while I was like at Scarlet, um, but which is under like new ownership and they're doing great. Um, but the the original owner or um, the original like management for Scarlet, they like, you know, they definitely wanted like, they definitely, I did think they did to like tokenize me. And like, I think sometimes it, did have to like play into that to like get the good shifts and you know like continue to be able to make money i think eventually that that kind of got tired that that doing that kind of got tired and it, and it wasn't you know good for my mental health space so i kind of left that environment but yeah it was definitely like i did tend to like re repackage myself to to be more um digestible for like the white the like the white cisgender men that you know are all over boys town yeah and that probably expand i mean it definitely expands past even just queer spaces right i mean the amount of people that have to repackage their identities to just fit in a uh in i'm i'm gonna call out where i used to work but when i was at cindy's for a few years i mean I feel like I saw so many people having to, in some way, alter their identities, whether it was behaviorally or the way that they dressed or wore their hair. I, all these are related on this, this idea of repackaging um, in order to, you're right, like get the good shifts and to like play the game. And it's, it's a conversation that I think is important to have because, um, and I kind of, I really like this idea of it, which is you can be anti-capitalism, but still know that as long as we are in a capitalistic society, you, you want to be able to benefit from it in order to make a living, in order to live comfortably. And so you, you can be uh, against something and still be a part of the system. And while it's still alive, have to work within it, which I feel like is what you're mentioning and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you were against yeah. it, but you're like, I also want to work the good shifts. Yeah, yeah. And I still needed to, to survive and make money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, I mean, I think we, I think like in the black community, we always talk about um, code switching, you know, like, you know, going from <laughs> like, you know, that like professional voice or not, I mean, <laughs> that professional, you know what I mean? Yeah, but that like, like you know, yeah. 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 So, I mean, <laughs> I think, and that's always, that's going to be like with every, like, like I know as a black person, that's something that I'm going to have to face with every single job I go into, whether it's in Boys Town or, you know, Andersonville or like Lincoln Square or whatever, like, you know, we, I, like code switching is just like, like so ingrained, like my, and it sucks, <laughs> but it's something like, you know, my, my, my parents have like, you know, always told me about that. That's something that you have to do, like to, to play the game. Yeah, I think what's something really interesting here, and I'm I'm trying to unpack how I'm going to bring it up because I can speak about it in the in the lens of of the black community, um, and less so through the lens of the LGBTQ plus community. But you know, in civil movements, in in movements for liberation, invisibility, and freedom, and and radical reform, um, I think that inequities show themselves true even within a community that is 
attempting to liberate itself in some capacity. So there are inequities inside of the Black community between, um, you know, Black cis straight men and, you know, Black cis straight women. Um, and, uh, you know, especially with the recognition and the, and the need for uplift and safety and justice for Black trans women, um, there are inequities in, in movement. So when I look at, when I'm observing um, differences in, in, in the community of uh, the LGBTQ plus and specifically for Boys Town, I'm seeing those, those same inequities that I'm used to seeing in my own Black community as I'm seeing here in this community, that cisgendered men are way or are holding a different type of privilege than uh you know transgendered people in that space as well or as non-conforming people in that space as well and i think um in this conversation it it lends interesting when we talk about visibility or eraser or what have you because those inequities are true those those experiences you know um are intersectional and i think um I lost my train of thought, but that's where, that's where I'm at. <laughs> no, that's great. I, I, I think a big part of these conversations is also uh, acknowledging one's own experience. And especially if it comes from a place of privilege, acknowledging it, taking accountability for it, and, and thinking about how you'll change moving forward. And uh, because I think the idea of privilege is going to be a great transition into Boys Town today and the conversations about what's been going on this week with with T-Rex and, and bars cutting ties with certain people because of their behavior. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I can say for myself that I think is, uh, it was very eye-opening to me, especially this last year since I left Cindy's. And Morgan, you'll know about this because you were on this, on this panel. But I, in a year ago, or maybe it was, was it a year ago or two years ago that we did an LGBTQ plus inclusivity panel at the Chicago Athletic Association Hotel, which, um, I was, I would have been 23 or 24 years old when this panel was being taken place, uh, coming from the lens of a white cisgendered gay male uh, context as far as moderating this panel, never having moderated a panel before. And at that time I thought, oh, what a great thing. Like the company I worked for wants to hold a panel on queerness and inclusion in the workspace. And I did my best to do the research beforehand to be really prepared for the panel. But looking back on it, and I knew this pretty quickly after the panel ended, I was so unqualified to host a panel like that with four people whose experiences just, uh, I just had no business coming into it, in my opinion, coming into it and essentially asking everybody to divulge their experiences. And don't get me wrong, like panelists were paid. We were very conscious of making sure that people's stories were valued in a certain extent. But the idea that in a lot of ways, we're talking about tokenizing. I felt in that moment, like the company was like, well, this is our most outspoken queer visual for our hotel, for Cindy's. We do need somebody to moderate this panel. We'd want it to be somebody in our company. David seems like the right choice. And at that time, I didn't think anything, I didn't think it was harmful and I didn't think it was dangerous for me to be doing that. And it's ironic because nowadays I would just, I would look at that and think that's like the most obviously questionable decision to, to make, which was me interviewing for people that were uh, that were women, non-binary, queer, lesbian, bisexual, uh, black, had completely different experiences than I could ever understand. And so it almost felt like 
wow, like what a point of privilege to let somebody who has virtually no experience in running a panel and moderating questions that are very personal and very, very intimate conversations. Um, but that's how companies think. That's how capitalistic structures think. It's, but we want to get the most viewership or we want to get the most possible buzz out of this. So the best way to do it is to use the quote unquote queerest person in our workspace to then lead it. And I'm looking back on it thinking like, oh my God, I've been allotted so much privilege without any actual like basis of qualifications to run these things. And Morgan, I don't know what your experience was like being on that panel, but I know that, and obviously we all had brunch afterwards and we had a good time. But to me, it was very eye-opening afterwards to think like, why was David moderating that? Like, he kind of had no justification to do that. Uh, <laughs> um, Call me out. I mean, yeah. one, I think, I think you actually did a great job. <laughs> I think you read himself. I don't know if I need to add more to that. But um, no, I mean, you did a great job, David. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that's true. Um, speaking on that panel, like, you know, there was some really like powerful voices um, on, on that panel. Um, and yeah, they, they probably were more qualified than you. I mean, they were more qualified than you um, to, to kind yeah. of run the panel. But I mean, it's, I never even, for some reason, I didn't even like think about that until now. But um, um, yeah, it, 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 I think that does happen a lot. It really, really does happen a lot. Um, where you kind of just get this, where you know, white men just kind of get this. I don't know, it, privilege, I guess, to, to just do those sort of things. Um, and it, yeah. I agree. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no I, 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 am, I am absolutely saying it in a way to read myself, both on like a, like, oh, self-reflection, that was, that was odd. And it, what's important is that it's happened to many of us, and I have a lot of, of white gay men who I am friends with who, who you know, are on this following, and I encourage them to know when it's appropriate to take a back seat and listen and to yeah. learn, rather than to try to be the person who gets to moderate the stories of other people, especially if they're a part of a marginalized community. Um, with that being said, I'm looking at the camera now. I'm also not the most qualified person to host this show, but here we are. Uh, we're doing <laughs> it anyway. Um, it's a good transition into what's going on in Boys Town today, which is where we'll kind of like finish off the, the round table on. So Morgan, I know that you you saw the, the video and you saw the kind of what's going on. Um, but the Chicago Black Drag Council was formed and there were these conversations. And can you, essentially the quick kind of uh, cliff notes version of this is that there's a drag queen in Chicago whose name is T-Rex, who is a, a popular host hired often by different queer bars in Boys Town to host drag shows, to host conversations with RuPaul's Drag Race contestants. Uh, Roscoe's, uh, I think, had a contract with T-Rex and so did Berlin? Berlin, yeah, Berlin. Berlin. Um, mm -hmm. And there were allegations that came out against T-Rex about uh, racist behavior and commentary that they made about uh, different drag queens. Uh, uh, the list is very long. And essentially there was a platform on Twitch to hold T-Rex accountable and to sort of put them on the forefront. And this isn't like a bash T-Rex conversation, but I'm just yeah. curious about what you, what you thought about about what that video was and what did you think about 
it's, it's, I think it's great. But what was your experience with watching all that happen? Um, you know, when the original call out, you know, happened, I, I mean, I've worked, I've worked with T-Rex um, for about like three years when I worked at Scarlet. Um, and, you know, so I think that I, I was a witness to, to kind of like the gatekeeping that, that was happening and that they were called out on. Um, and I think that, you know, it was really appropriate and it was long overdue. Um, and, you know, when I originally read their, their statement about what was happening, you know, I, I was happy that they were taking accountability um, and, you know, and, and that they were seeking to, to make things right. And then kind of watching the Twitch happen, that was a whole nother, um, that, that created like a lot, a lot of emotions where I felt like it was kind of like insincere. And, you know, there was a lot of people who had a lot of trauma and they were, you know, really trying to be open about, you know, how they have, you know, how much, you know, pain they've gone through and how much they've been holding on. And I think there was some people who are really receptive in, in, in taking responsibility. And I think that there was, you know, other, you know, bars and, you know, kind of T-Rex who were kind of unsincere, insincere, insincere um, in, in taking accountability and really seeking to do justice and to do better. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking. So, I mean, I, I don't believe in like cancel culture. Um, well, unless it's for people who, you know, refuse to do better. Um, I felt like the call out was really, you know, valid and what those people were feeling were, it, it was really, really valid. And I wish that they kind of responded better um, to, to what was happening. Yeah, in watching it, I thought, um, I thought first, like, how did I not notice that this was all happening, having a lot of friends that were so close to a lot of these drag queens and I feel like was I not listening was I not paying attention was I just like up okay with looking away because it wasn't my business I don't I think I I was telling Kasira before this I was like I feel like I only ever went out in Du Bois Town to watch Black Girls Magic and to see my favorite drag queens who happened to be black in Chicago and so I was, I think I was surprised. And then watching the call out, I was so impressed by the, uh, the black queens and queer people that were calling to attention, I should say, instead of calling out, but calling to attention yeah, yeah. their experience. It, it, well, you know, it is what it is, but calling to attention their experiences and essentially in a really thoughtful and really organized way, sort of creating a list of expectations and demands. And I thought what was most impressive about this, and it's like, again, it just shows how the that a black community is willing to forgive and offer forms of restitution and ways to um, ways to uh, minimize future harm. And all that was really being asked for was compromise, uh, a genuine apology. And it was really hard to watch that not really yeah. happen and accountability not to be taken. And it's you know I agree. I think cancel culture is meant for dangerous and harmful behavior. Uh, but, you know, we, I think we loosely use the term and I think white people have taken the term and run off with it and to do with it what they may. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. I do think it's interesting for, for people to note what is going on in Boys Town today and to see what the experience is like when we go back to queer bars in Chicago, uh, you know, 
post-quarantine, post the current Black Lives Matter protests, hoping that these places take thoughtful approaches to creating better and more equitable spaces. Yeah, and I was actually just recently a part of uh, a roundtable, um, you know, all the North Side queer bars um, and with the with the Black Drag Council. Um, and it was interesting to see, like, I, I know that some people came really prepared to, you know, um, to do better and actually and have actionable items that they that they can change and move forward and so i was really happy to see that because i do feel like every year you know these you know black people have brought this up about two boys down saying you know we are being discriminated against we are feeling you know like we're, we're not being treated the same um and it kind of it you know, catches on for a little bit, and then you know, no, nothing is actually done. There's no, there's no action actually taking place. It's just the same conversation every year. I think this year we've gotten closer than we ever have before to really, really changing things. And I'm really hoping that we continue this momentum. And I think once they set, they, it was a the roundtable was all the GMs and a couple of different managers from almost every single Northside bar and you know the fact that you know everyone was able to come together and people were able to really talk about or and black people were really able to talk about their concerns um their issues and their past um experiences i think that was really it was it was really great for me to watch as a, as a black person um working in the bars and as a customer who goes to goes to those bars Totally. Well said. Um, Kasira, take us away. Beautiful. We are going to transition into some rapid fire questions. Um, first one, if you were to describe um, your 2020 in three words, what would they be? Oh, wow. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so easy. Exhausting, but kind of cozy. Um, and <laughs> problematic, I think. <laughs> I love it. My favorite word. <laughs> I love, I love, but it was kind of nice being like away from everything for a good amount of time. I'm not gonna lie. So that's where the cozy comes, cozy part comes yeah. from. Yeah, I can definitely feel that. Um, yeah. The exhaustion is real. The work is is hard and ever and ever going. Um, yeah. Have you ever or have you been uh, binge watching anything during quarantine that you would recommend for us, or what have you been binge watching? Um, Dave, you already know the answer to this, but Killing Eve, I'm obsessed. Um, I love it so much. It's so good. Um, um, and anything with Jodie Comer, who plays Villanelle on Killing Eve, like anything that she's in, I'm kind of like working through her whole catalog of stuff. She's an amazing actress. So yeah, Killing Eve would probably be my number one choice. Amazing. Um, I watched the first season of Killing Eve, and I know the second season is out. So oh, good. We'll see. I'm 100% so in it just for Lucy. Uh, not, what is that? I'm Sandra sorry. Oh. Her. Sandra, Sandra oh, thank oh. you. <laughs> Not losing. I'm tripping. I'm in it yeah. for her hair. That's all I'm in it for. But I'm gonna. I agree with Beautiful that. Uh, that actress's acting is amazing. Um. Third question. 
first cocktail you uh, will be taking part in at a bar when we go down to a bar and drink. What, I'm sorry, I asked that question very weirdly. Uh, what will be your first cocktail when you get to sit at a bar? Um, well, the thing is, I've still, like, I've, I've still been working through all this, so I've still been having cocktails at bars. Uh, but I, I just love a classic margarita, so you know, next time I'm at a bar, which will probably be tomorrow at work, um, I'll probably have a margarita. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> after, after work, not very. <laughs> <laughs> Um, amazing. Love a good margarita. Uh, what is a common misconception about you? You know, a lot of people think I can build stuff or that I can put anything together and I have no skills at all. I'm not butch at all. I like can't even kill a spider. So like, that's probably the biggest misconception. <laughs> I can't like, I can't lift anything. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I love that people just assume this. They're just like, do you mind coming over and helping me with the shelf? And you're like, not at all. No. <laughs> yeah. <Who? no. laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't do anything like that. Or that I'm like, even like, like a big softie. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and the last question I have for you is what have you been doing or what do you do uh, for some self-care and some relaxation? Besides watching Killing Eve, I'm a big fan of a like just a, a hot shower. Like oh, it just takes away everything, especially after a long day, or you know, even if, like when you wake up and like you're feeling stressed out. Just like having a good hot long shower and like probably listening to some tunes while I do it. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's amazing. Biggest yeah. And then we have our uh, our infamous spill the tea section, uh, what makes us so famous on social media platforms, uh, which is uh, questions that have been submitted by viewers of Anthropological. Uh, and because we're running a little late and I think it's good to work after this, I'm going to leave you with one question, which is, what is the greatest thing that you've learned from being, uh, from transitioning from a uh, bartender in Boys Town to then being a manager at a bar uh, what are, what's a great lesson that you've learned? Um, what did, how did they say? They say like a, a closed mouth doesn't get fed. Um, just like speaking up and being very clear about what you want, what you don't want and your boundaries. Like, and that's probably like, you know, I think when, when you're vocal about things and, you know, people don't have to play like a guessing game with your feelings or your thoughts or your expectations, then, you know, you're, you're going to be like more successful and like really get what you want out of life. Okay, I love that. Yeah. And then as Kasira says famously, we're going to wrap it there. <laughs> uh, Okay. Morgan, thank you for uh, offering your voice and your thoughts to this conversation. It's awesome catching up with you. I can't wait to be a moderator for another LGBTQ panel in the future with you. <laughs> and it's going to be great. Um, yeah. But thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was really fun and, and it felt good. Thanks. Really lovely. Thank you so much. Thanks, really lovely. Guys. And to all of our viewers, we will see you next week with another episode of Anthropological. Cheers. Oh. <laughs> you like that?